These headphones for a while, whenever I would go into a Zoom meeting, would connect to my Spotify, which was always Phantom of the Opera. So I would pop into a Zoom call at work and all of a sudden it would be like, dun, 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 dun. I'm like, oh, okay, no, 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 it's not that dramatic. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Bean Radio. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Beam Radio. I am one of today's fabulous three co-hosts. I am Sophie DiBenedetto. I am joined today by Alex Kutmos. Hey, Alex. Howdy, howdy. Welcome, as well as Bruce Tate. Hi, Bruce. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's so nice to see you both. I haven't been around um, in a minute because I was traveling. I was actually at the GoTo Copenhagen conference, which was really cool, and it gave me plenty of opportunities to talk about live view um, and about the the book too bruce and i know that bruce and i have a go to uh book club session i think coming out soon on the go to youtube channel that steven nunez another one of our co-hosts who isn't here today was able to moderate for us so if you haven't read the book yet or if you have and you just want to hear us talk all about it um, check it out when it comes out. We'll, we'll post it when it is available. Uh, we do have a very special guest today, somebody that I am very excited to introduce. But before we do that, I will give our traditional shout out to our sponsors, Underyard.io. We don't have Lars here with us today, so we'll have to hear from him next time. But we do have Bruce Tate uh, of Groxio, as you guys may know. So Bruce, do you want to give us a quick update on what's going on in Groxio land? Yes, so Paulo is is kind of joining the team and he's making his mark. You might have seen kind of the the revisions for the overall look and feel. And so we are starting to incorporate exorcism exercises into the OTP and Elixir courses. We're about two thirds through the Elixir course rewrite. And so we're about to move into processes and behaviors and CRC and things like that, uh, kind of the advanced topics. So it's getting pretty exciting. If you're not already a member, come join us. Yeah, I will attest to the fact that the new look of the Graxio website is frankly stunning, but it still has, you know, the feel and the vibe and the color scheme of the original Graxio. So uh, really nicely done. All right. So without further ado, I am really excited to introduce today's guest. We have with us Caitlin Burns. Caitlin recently keynoted ElixirConf, and she's going to tell us a little bit about that talk and what she's been working on. She is currently at Launch Scout. I believe she began there a while back under their apprenticeship program. And Caitlin and I actually first met at CodeBeam in Mountain View last year, I think. And I think at the time, was that the first technical talk you had ever given? And now we were keynoting ElixirConf. Is that, did that happen in less than a year? Uh, yes, that was my first talk. Um, it got accepted while I was still an apprentice. I just got out of the apprenticeship when I was giving the talk, but amazing. yeah, I thought that was wild when it happened. Definitely was overwhelmed and excited when I found out I'd be giving a keynote a little while yeah. after. I was not at all surprised to hear that your talk at CodeBeam was really excellent. You were such a natural up there. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit more about sort of that experience and kind of how you went from that first ever talk to this keynote. But before we dive in there, I will ask you the traditional opening question for all of our guests, which is to just tell us a little bit about yourself and in particular, how you got into Elixir programming. Yeah, um, I live in New York City. I've been here for about seven years, I'd say now. And I got into Elixir when I joined Launch Scout. I had not heard of Elixir before that. 
and I had went to a boot camp for JavaScript. So when I joined the when I joined Launch Scout, uh, they introduced me to Elixir. And at first, I was a little hesitant just because I had just gotten out of a boot camp learning a completely different language. But now, anytime that I go back to JavaScript, I'm like, oh, take me back to Elixir. I'm in love with it. Please don't. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that one of the things that, that we sometimes forget, Elixir is a senior developer laden language, and it's harder to find juniors. And that scares me when you have a new language. So I want to I want to give a hat tip to Launch Scout for their apprenticeship program, and I want to ask you a little bit more about what that apprenticeship looked like, and and um, how did you ramp up so quickly? Um, what is first? What does that apprenticeship look like? Yeah. So one of the nice things about the apprenticeship is they start you on a project. After that first week, I was working on a project, mostly writing tests, which was a really good way to figure out what it was we were working on and how Elixir works. But I had a mentor the whole time and it really helped to ramp up that it wasn't just guessing what I would be working on when I became an actual developer. I was developing alongside someone who had been doing it for a while. So it was a really easy way to ramp up. And now would be probably a great time to give a shout out to your mentor. Who's your, who was your initial mentor and what did they teach you? Yeah, my initial mentor was Chris Nelson. Um, I actually met him for the first time in person at ElixirConf. So it was great to see him not behind a screen for once. Honestly, it's hard to pick one thing that he taught me because I didn't know anything about the language or I actually hated the back end before we started working together and anything to do with data. I was like, no, I want the site to look pretty. I don't care how it gets <laughs> its data. But um, after working with him, I now really enjoy it. So definitely shout out to him. So you mentioned when you were programming in, uh, in JavaScript and then you went to Elixir. And then when you go back to JavaScript, you kind of recoil uh, in fear. <laughs> What you know, what are some of the you know the foot guns in, in JavaScript that maybe you know as a first language you didn't really see, but then you went to a functional language like Elixir, and then you go back to JavaScript and you see those kind of uh, those glaring problems or, or issues there. I mean, the biggest ones are definitely the multiple function heads and piping. The fact that there's something that's super simple that I want to do. And it's going to take me 20 lines of code that's going to be hard for someone to come back and read versus I could have just done one nice simple function with a couple of function heads. And th that's the one that really gets me is I'm like, oh, if or pattern matching. I'm like, if I had pattern matching, this would be so simple. But now I need like 20 if statements. And so that's the biggest one for me. If if I recall correctly, some of those feelings may have like inspired your CodeBeam talk from last year. Was that sort of drawn from your experiences as an apprentice coming into Elixir? I think you even talked a little bit about at that time how looking back at JavaScript like kind of gave you chills a little bit. Yeah, I definitely uh, for that talk, I went back and looked at some of my code from the boot camp. And part of that was just 
early developer learning a lot, but um, I definitely did a lot of code that with Elixir, I can do more in the back end and more smoothly connect both. Like the back end and the front end don't feel like separate things as much with Elixir. Interesting. Um, With JavaScript, it felt like you have one, you have the other, and you have this little tiny connecting piece. And so going back to having them that disconnect is hard for me. I'd love to dig into that comment you just made a little bit more when you said that in Elixir, the back end and the front end don't feel so separate or so different. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you feel that way? Um, I think a big thing is, especially with live view, they're meant to communicate with each other. It is mm-hmm. meant to be a smooth process where you are communicating in real time with the back end and the front end versus just creating a query that you have to reach for if you're doing like your GraphQL, you have to set up the query in the front end and know what it is you're grabbing from versus if you're doing Elixir all the way through, you can just run a function that you created in the back end in the front end. It's not, you're not having to piece those pieces together quite as much. I got to say, this is a cool conversation because you could see kind of the hints of the mentorship in your experience and how it's accelerated your development. And a lot of professions do this, right? So we have we have apprenticeships in, in engineering and obviously in medicine. I'm, I'm interested in, in your take. Have you talked to other Elixir professionals who haven't had the benefit of the experience that you had? And have you had a chance to compare to kind of swap notes? Uh, I haven't had a lot of that. Just mostly when I talk about the apprenticeship, I get a lot of, man, I wish I had something like that is the main uh, takeaway that I get from it. But other than that, not a lot of, and I could tell when I first signed up for the apprenticeship that it was going to be something special because when I did the first coding exam, it, it felt like real pairing. We were, they were asking me questions. I was allowed to ask the developer, what would you do in this situation? I was allowed to look at documentation, which other coding exams before that, there was one that I had where I had to record my ceiling to make sure I didn't have notes on the ceiling. Like (laughs) wild, completely different. Oh my god! I would fail that coding exam. I would, I would fail just because it would it. stress me out so much to be request to have like a picture of my feeling. <laughs> that is so nuts. Um, but let's be honest that maybe, you know, in that failure, there's a little bit of success because you don't have to, to work for somebody yeah. who, would, who would concoct such a thing. Yeah, I, I did not feel bad about not passing that one. I was like, <laughs> you know... If, if you can't trust the people that you're working with enough that you want me to record my ceiling before an exam, that's that's a separate level right there. Yeah, that's a yeah, huge red flag. If anybody ever does that, you just stay stay far away. You just say, you just say, pause for a little bit and then paste notes on your ceiling, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's so cool that you had such a positive experience with the apprenticeship program and I mean clearly right because you went from like being an apprentice giving your first talk doing that Elixir Comp keynote um, I think it's something that 
I wish every company would do sort of an official apprenticeship program, but you know, it's not always possible for various reasons. Maybe your company is too small, maybe it's too big, whatever. Um, or maybe people just aren't open to investing those kinds of resources, unfortunately. So I'm curious, what are some of the features of your apprenticeship program or just experiences you had that you feel that maybe other companies could adopt, even if they don't go all the way with an apprenticeship? Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones was as an apprentice, I was writing code, but it was code that maybe your senior developers wouldn't want to be writing in the first place. Your tests or mm -hmm. your simple bug fixes that your senior developers could be doing that, but they're probably wanting to be working on your bigger problems at the moment. And so if you have an apprentice, they're still working on the code and having value and feeling that value, which was really big for me is I might be learning, but I'm also still contributing to the company as I'm doing this. So I don't feel as scared to learn or as to be a beginner because I'm still seeing that value there. And I think that's really important. Yeah, that's cool. And I want to talk about another, another type of advice that you get at LaunchScout. You know, some, sometimes we think about apprenticeship as just the technical details, but there's other things like, like just the, the career advice that you can get in, in a place like this. And, and also this is such a treacherous time for computer science. I mean, you can look around and see what's happening. I mean, your Elixir Cop talk was about, was about machine learning and uh, you know, kind of, kind of tracking patterns and contours and things like that. And these are all kind of fraught areas that, that it must be terrifying for a junior without guidance to, to kind of track into. Um, so can you talk about some of the things that Launch Scout, that's some of the ideas that Launch Scout has provided, some of the, the types of career guidance and, and ethical guidance that, um, that you might not get in other places as just a raw, um, a raw junior? Yeah, um, one of the biggest things was just we're a super supportive company and that support was huge. Uh, it's one of the only reasons that I ended up doing these two talks. I never would have thought to do it myself, but um, we had a group that was just, what are you interested in right now? What are you passionate about? Let's make that a talk. And so having that support was huge, but talking about the machine learning and being juniors, one of our things that we have talked about a lot is I know that there has been thoughts of have machine learning do the easier problems instead of junior engineers because it's cheaper, but you don't get senior engineers if you don't have junior engineers first. And I think that's a big thing that we're talking about is we're not making junior engineers, we're making future senior engineers. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think I actually heard heard a quote from from Stu Holloway that talked about um, what you should be looking for in, in an engineer. And he said that if you are trying to build particular specific skills in a language, then then you should be seeking to build that skill rather than find it in the marketplace, because sometimes that's the better way to go. And I also believe, I strongly believe that a language without juniors is a dying language. Strongly believe that. Right, because everybody who is currently coding is going to eventually retire. 
And so if you are not bringing in people who are younger, then who's going to be the next generation of coders? Nobody. Chat GBT, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know. Even so. <laughs> I have asked it questions before, not about coding, just to see if it can answer questions. And usually it's three quarters correct, uh, is what I would say. Right. It's that one quarter that'll get you in trouble, though. Oh, 100%. It's that one quarter that it's like, if I didn't have someone reading this and checking your answers, then... And at that point, why not just have someone else do it? Why have it answer quickly and badly? I think it's an interesting topic. I know that that's something that Bruce has been thinking a lot about um, lately. We've probably all been thinking a lot about this, and I think it kind of relates back to the importance of things like this apprenticeship program as our industry continues to develop in light of chat GPT and co-pilot and other, you know, as yet to be invented, you know, ML or AI powered programming tools. You know, I think, of course, there's still that 25% of it being wrong, you know, a quarter of the time, but that's going to change eventually. And, and people today, I'm not really using these tools. I think that effectively, but I see a lot of my colleagues use copilot to like really um, effectively solve problems and kind of untangle bugs or um, kind of tweak designs of things that they're working on. Like they'll use Copilot, not necessarily to write the code, but to explain existing code in like a legacy code base. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they can take every single word of that Copilot generated explanation as gospel truth, but it's astonishing to me how it provides enough correct information to really, I would say like supercharge the work that your average developer is doing. And that's where I think we really need apprenticeship programs, mentors, like a strong partnership between more experienced engineers and folks that are newer to our industry to figure out how to use these tools correctly, because they're definitely here to stay. They're definitely capable of making us better programmers, more performant programmers, more efficient programmers. Um, but we still need to like figure out how to take what we need from them and, and use them correctly, which requires like a certain degree of experience. And I feel that that's something that organizations, companies, teams don't always get right. Um, like I said earlier, a lot of companies certainly don't have an apprenticeship program, don't necessarily have mentoring, don't even necessarily have like an onboarding process for new engineers or new team members that is as, as strong as it could be or needs to be. So I think that this is an area that we're all going to have to spend a lot more attention on and get a lot better at as a community um, if we're going to keep programming for money, right? If we're going to use these tools well and not be outcompeted, frankly, by people who, who are using them well. Yeah, well, and I've got to say that I agree with that. I mean, it's the same thing as using spell check on a document. Totally, I'm not going to say yeah. that you're a bad writer if you use spell check. Like, I, I wouldn't write half of... Actually, I was worse at spelling until spell check. Spellcheck really yeah. helped me to become a better writer. And so I, same thing of just using it to supplement what you're already doing or to give you new ideas. I'm absolutely for using that. It's the, this is the replacement for humans thing that I'm like, mm, I don't know about that, but as a supplement or as a tool, absolutely. It's a great choice. Yeah, I think it's another tool in our toolkit. Um, and I think that we need 
to engage with it. And I think that we need more, like I said, of these partnerships between people who have more and less experience. Folks with more experience in engineering work are going to come in and be able to layer that experience kind of on top of what tools like Copilot might be telling you. Um, but folks who are newer to this industry, kind of getting back to this question earlier of like, you know, a, a language without juniors is a dying language, whether you are, you know, younger and that's why you're newer to it, or you're a career change uh, developer, like, like I am and Caitlin, I think you probably are too, since I know you came through bootcamp as well. You have these different experiences, different professional experiences, different set of interests in your background to draw from like that sort of, I'm going to use the word synergy, even though I think it's kind of lame and made up, um, I think is is going to be really critical to how our industry continues to grow, especially with these new tools. Yeah, I strongly agree. I, I love the idea that that we can use the the tools that I mean, even the one in your keynote um, to to kind of make us yeah. better, right? We could we could ask ChatGPT to, hey, help us help us shore up this skill. Give me some exercises to work on. Help me shore up this code. Help me understand this code. And suddenly you've got a you've got a stronger got a stronger developer and the apprenticeship the the apprentices have to get smarter too right and and i'm sure that we will but with with this in mind um so your keynote so can you talk about the the fundamental concept the the problem that you were solving in your keynote because i think it's a fascinating one yeah so my keynote was all about motion tracking so we have if you have a video and you're trying to track the objects across the screen. It was all about tracking that as well as using Bumblebee to try and identify those objects as they're going across the screen. Yeah, that's so cool. And talk about the video that you used that you were tracking against. Yeah, so that was me at a trapeze class. Um, I was <laughs> upside down for at least part of that. Uh, it, it was one of those living in New York City kind of things where I just had a friend who texted and said, hey, do you want to be on a trapeze? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and I did not, ex again, a thing where you don't expect to be as accelerated learning as you were. I did not expect to be upside down by the end of that class, but there you go. And I just... I asked my friend to take a video of it because I'm like, this is going to be a perfect motion tracking example. This is going to be great. <laughs> so wait a minute. So you had the, the keynote uh, opportunity first, and then you recorded the video, and then you decided to use that video in, in the context of the keynote. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I already knew that I was writing the keynote. I had already been building the motion tracker. And then I was like, okay, you know, I've done me in front of a desk moving my hand around or videos that I already have. This one will be a really fun push to see. This is not something I would normally be tracking. How well does it do at that? <laughs> and I got to say that that did give the keynote a little bit more of a wow factor, but it also gave... Caitlin, a little bit more of a, a wow factor. <laughs> how did you trust the the operation that you were working with? How, how did how did that that go? Honestly, um, I about the third time that I went up there, the person that was trusting me in and helping me to grab the bar was like, "You seem like you're still really scared." And I went, "Yeah. Do you, do you know what I'm doing right now?" And he was like, "Well, you know, there's no reason to be scared." And I said, "Well, if I was." not going to do it because I was scared. I wouldn't have signed up for the classes. This is terrifying. 
Um, but that's, that's a part of it. Like, I'm going to be terrified, but I'm going to be terrified up in the air rather than terrified on the ground. So that's just. <laughs> okay. So speaking, speaking about flying through the air without knowing quite how you're going to land, let's talk about getting this opportunity of doing the keynote in the first place. What made you say yes to this opportunity? And, um, and which was more terrifying, the, the trapeze act or the keynote itself? So accepting the keynote in my head was never a question. Um, when, when they asked me if I wanted to do it, I was just like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then worry about the fear afterwards. Same thing with the trapeze. I'm very <laughs> much a, I'm not going to say no because I'm scared. I'm going to say yes and then go, okay, what can I do to kind of lessen this fear or just acknowledge I'm going to be scared the whole time and that's totally fine. Doesn't mean I still can't do this thing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my process. So walk me through your mental process as you're, so you've gotten this, this opportunity to build the talk, um, walk me through your decision process of how you went about solving enough of a problem to be interesting to, um, to that, that stadium full of people in, in Orlando. Yeah, that part was tricky at first. I was a little worried that I wasn't going to have enough of a solution for it to be interesting because mm -hmm. this was a, a new idea for me and it seemed like it was a new idea for research as well using these specific methods to do motion tracking. So I was a little worried about whether I would have something that was substantial enough, but I just kept doing research, kept uh, showing what I did have to my coworkers to be like, is this interesting? Or um, like, would you be interested in this? Um, and did they say no? Did they <laughs> no. ever say no? <laughs> no, they never said no. I did occasionally be like, so if you were going to be contouring or if you were going to be thresholding, what would you do? And I definitely got some blank stares about that. But um, hopefully by the end of my talk and I taught them as well. <laughs> so. Okay. So let's talk about, so being in the air um, from the trapeze, there were moments of, of like heightened fear. So walk me through the process of, of preparing the talk where were there some times when you thought I'm not going to land this trick? I'm not going to land this talk um, as you were preparing. Yeah, I think the biggest ones were when I was trying to do that initial research phase and being like, just trying to figure out because it's a very meaty thing. I'm talking about machine learning, I'm talking about videos, I'm talking about pictures. And at first, when I started doing it, I was starting to learn the algorithms of how to do machine learning. And I was like, wait, 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 take a step back. That's not what this is about. You're never going to finish this if I start from the ground up and learn machine learning to do motion tracking when machine learning isn't even the final. So I think just that was my biggest hurdle was there was just so much information out there to narrow it down to let's make this a approachable talk for anyone who hasn't done this before. 
And let's talk about your pivot, right? So you had that moment of fear when you say, I might not land this. And then you you started to make a little bit of a shift. Um, was it was the first part of the shift to Bumblebee or to Python? When did you start getting a little bit of confidence that this was going to, that you're going to land the way you wanted it to? Yeah, so I always knew that I wanted to use Bumblebee. It was definitely that shift of finding out about eVision and finding out that I could use those Python tutorials that were already out there to write an Elixir, because I really didn't want to learn in Python, but there were a lot of articles out there. So I'm like, there, there is no reason that I should have to write this in Python. Like Python is a great language. I know why people use it, but I don't want to learn an entire language for a talk that I want to give. I, I pitched this in Elixir. I think there's no reason I shouldn't be able to do it in Elixir. And so when I found out that there was an easy path to doing it in Elixir through work that people had already done in Python, that's when things really started to open up. So now you're starting to go into Python and you start to get to kind of the meat of the talk, which is the contouring problem. And you start to have to make some decisions about how coarse, um, how fine do you want this contouring to be? Uh, can you walk us through how you made those decisions and how far you got? Yeah, so it was interesting because a lot of the tutorials that I was reading seemed like they were written for people who had already done contouring or had already done image manipulation. There were a lot of variables that they were just expecting you to kind of just either believe them that that's what the number that you should use or that you have already done this yourself. So you, you understand why they're doing that number. And honestly, the way that I dealt with that was I'm not the type of person to take something at face value. If you hand me a thing, I want to know why you did it the way you did. So I created my functions doing what tutorials were suggesting and then just edited a number and then ran it again in my console to see what it would look like and just kept do and doing extremes of, well, if they say 33, I'm going to do one and a hundred to see what, why they picked 33. And at what point in your ElixirConf talk itself, as you're delivering this talk, at what point did you feel, I got this, I have the crowd. So clearly there was a buzz in the room. I mean, very clearly. At what point did you know, hey, this, this talk is mine? Yeah, so I I have done public speaking a fair amount before I got into Elixir, and I, I did acting before, so I'm used to being on a stage. So I had a little bit of confidence when I went up there, but I was picking people in the audience who seemed like they were interested and kind of keeping an eye on them as I went. And the way that I knew that I had the talk was at one point someone just pointed really emphatically at me like, yes, exactly what she's saying um, <laughs> pretty early on. I'm like, okay, clearly they're interested if people are in a conference room, like getting excited about it. So that that's where I was like, okay, everyone's excited about this. We got this. From the technical side of things, uh, how is it working with a lot of these uh, machine learning tools in Elixir? I haven't had the chance to really dive into any of them. So I, I have no idea how, how they are to work with. But I'm kind of curious. It sounds like this is your first machine learning project, even computer vision project. 
how was it working with Bumblebee, eVision, and you know a lot of the other ML tools that we're seeing in the ecosystem pop up? Yeah, I think that um, Bumblebee was super easy to use once I figured out what models I was allowed to use, which ones are currently available. And so loading in the model was pretty easy. I had a lot of people that were worried that I was just using my MacBook, so I might not have enough memory for it or things might slow down. But honestly, I didn't have any of those problems with that. So setting up the machine learning was using the tutorials that they have out there was pretty easy. And same with eVision, it was just the small details that were harder to use. Like there, I think by the end that I was done with my code, there was maybe like a hundred lines. So it was writing the code itself was pretty easy. It was more the understanding why I'm using a specific function or what it is that it's doing in the background versus just sticking it in there and going, mm, it does what they say it does. So. so this kind of goes back to me to the beginning. It's almost like with Bumblebee, we have the apprenticeship for the machine learning uh, type problems, right? So we kind of bring this kind of tooling, we bring Axon into the realm of something that's easier for more people to consume. And it started to open up machine learning in Elixir. Uh, when did you know that you wanted to take the talk in a Bumblebee direction? So this talk is a small part of a project that I have had in my mind's eye since probably since I started the boot camp. Um, and I just never thought that I would have the ability to make it uh, because there are just a lot of different pieces to what I want to build. And the motion tracking itself was the first barrier that I wanted to attack, but even that seemed like it was going to be huge. And so Bumblebee, was a clear answer for me because I would love to learn machine learning, but if I went through each step of, well, I want to learn machine learning and now I want to learn motion tracking and then I want, I would never finish or even really start this thing that I wanted to build because it's just so overwhelming. And so that's why Bumblebee was an easy start for me is it gave me the confidence to start in machine learning and now feel like, okay, if I wanted to learn more about machine learning down the road, now I'm feeling a little bit more of that understanding of what a model is or just the basics of what machine learning is so that I could eventually start to do that on my own. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, so I wanna, I wanna dig into this idea a little bit of kind of, kind of a starting a fire, right? Uh, because that's what your talk did. It, it started a fire. Um, and I can't thank you enough for saying yes to the opportunity for delivering the talk that you did for um, invigorating and encouraging people that are in the same or, or just or just slightly earlier in their programming walk than you are. And my question to you is, how do we encourage en encourage more people like that to take the stage, not just at ElixirConf, but at other conferences. There are a lot of great local conferences. How do we make this happen more often? What's the template? Honestly, for me, the biggest thing is 
what are you interested in building? What, what, or what are you passionate about, about what you're doing? What it, what it sparks interest in you? Because chances are, if it sparks interest in you, it's probably going to spark interest in other people too. And you're just going to give a better talk if you're interested in it. If you're just doing the, well, this is what people are interested in right now. So I'm going to say the words, it comes out, it's obvious. But if you're doing something that you really enjoy, it's easier to get other people excited about it and to share that journey. And also when I do talks, I try to do it more of a story than just to say, look, I went through a journey, here's what my journey was so that it's a little more approachable for people to say, well, sure, she knows machine learning, but that's because she's been doing this forever. No, no, I haven't. Here are the steps that I took to get there so that you can take those steps to just leading other people on the journey as well is kind of my hope when I do these talks. That's interesting. So you're saying that the secret ingredient is is the curiosity that burns that that starts this fire in the first place. Yeah, 100%. Because if you're not interested in it, why do you expect the people listening to it to be interested in it? Like, and so and so once you're that at that point, and once you have that spark, and it's and it's lit and it's burning, how do you how do you move forward from that point? to to give a talk um what was what were the um the key ingredients to your success as you were preparing your talk um submitting your talk um rehearsing your talk getting feedback what was that was the um what were some of the magic ingredients for you yeah i think one of the big questions when you're doing a talk like this isn't just what is it that i'm interested in but specifically what are the pieces if i was listening to someone talk about this what what would i want to hear what what would i want to learn and to also like you say get feedback talk to other people if your talk is to teach other people then if you can talk to someone and see if they've learned anything in the 10 minutes that you're talking to them, or if they're looking at you with their eyes glazed over going, I have no idea what any of that was, then you've kind of got a, a ground area of where, where to move forward, I feel like. I think it's so interesting what you said um, a few moments ago, kind of like, what is actually interesting to you versus what you think people want to hear about. And I think that this is something that comes up a lot for basically everyone I talk to and I try to encourage people to submit talks, whether they're super senior or whether they're really junior, they think that they don't have anything to talk about or anything interesting or valuable to say. And it's also something that I would hear a lot from my students back when I was teaching um, at boot camp together with Steven, we used to require that students would produce like two blog posts or something like that over the course of their time with us. And a lot of people really struggled with it because they felt that they had to come up with something new and exciting that had never been written about before, which was like kind of impossible to do, especially if you're just learning. And I think it's that same mentality, right? This idea that like, I'm surely not interesting enough to talk about something unless it's totally groundbreaking, absolutely brand new. And, you know, that's not me. I'll never get to that point. 
but just writing about or talking about something that you are learning, something that is interesting to you, even if it's kind of straightforward, or even if you're not the first person to write about it or talk about it, is still an immensely valuable thing to do in our community. And I think that those were exactly the thoughts running through my head when I watched in person your first talk that you gave last year, Caitlin, at Codebeam, um, because you were talking about, I'll probably forget like some of the details, but you were talking about a number of things, pattern matching in Elixir, kind of coming into Elixir from a, a different type of background, the features of this language that had captured your attention, captured your imagination, how you were working with them. And, you know, not for nothing, those are not words that have never been uttered about the Elixir language before, but it was extremely compelling to hear about it from you because it was from your point of view, it was about your experience and it was something that had captured your attention. Um, and I've recommended that talk to like mentees of mine and other people that I've talked to as they've been getting into Elixir in the year or so. Um, gosh, it hasn't even been a year since you gave that first talk. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something that I really want people to take to heart, right? You should talk about, you should write about what is compelling to you at this time and it will be valuable to people in our community it doesn't have to be you don't have to be like of inventing the next frontier of ml in elixir to be doing something really compelling with bumblebee and i know a lot of people in elixir right now myself included that are feeling a little intimidated by jumping into some of those ml technologies and using some of those libraries so seeing what you were able to do in that talk was really inspiring to me um, and I definitely want to see more of that from people around the community. So thank you for setting that example. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to hear. And yeah, the that's exactly what I was thinking. My first talk that I did, I when I submitted it, I was like, no one's going to want to listen to this. It's just me talking about why I like Elixir and it's at an Elixir conference. Like we all like it. What, no, but I think one of the things that I would say is if you're interested in giving a talk and you're thinking this is a talk that someone's done before that we all know, we have probably heard the words before, but we haven't heard them out of your mouth. And everyone's experience really flavors things extremely differently. So having those different backgrounds or coming through an apprenticeship or a boot camp or coming back to coding after 10 years of stopping or what, whatever journey it is that you're on, it's the part that's going to make it interesting, not the fact that you like Elixir because, you know, we're here for a reason. Yeah, very well said, Caitlin. Thank you for that. So, Caitlin, thank you so much for another another wonderful example of why we love Launch Scout. So you want to take just a, a brief moment to uh, to tell our listeners who Launch Scout is and what they should be doing um, to engage with Launch Scout. Yeah, so at Launch Scout, we help organizations to create their projects that they want to, speaking of passionate about what it is that they're currently trying to make. Uh, one of the most recent ones that I did was to help someone make a calendar app because they were using Excel sheets to keep track of their schedule, which is absolutely wild to me. But uh, we're, we also do apprenticeship programs and we're just very passionate about what we do and helping people to build what it is that they want to build. Yes, and I would echo that, that, and you do all of that with excellence 
soul and commitment. And that's so very hard to find in a partner. Yeah, uh, the company that I was just working at with was talking about how they felt like we were members of the team that we had just onboarded and it wasn't someone coming in to help them. It was bringing in new team members and that we understood what it is that they wanted to do and were empathetic. And I think that's a huge thing when you're coming into someone else's team is to try and remember that they are a team that has been doing something for a while and you're coming in to be a part of that for however long you are being a part of that and to try and come into that with respect and to also help them build. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I love that idea that you are, you're joining a team. You're not just kind of like fly by to drop some knowledge and then peace out that you're becoming a part of that community for the time that you're there. And I think that especially what you shared about the apprenticeship program and kind of what it's done for you, it's certainly no surprise to hear that that is the mentality that Launch Scout brings to their projects. Um, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure. Before we wrap up, um, if our listeners do want to reach out to you, is there some place they can do so? Uh, yeah, so my email that I normally um, reply to the best is my name, Caitlin Burns, 655 at gmail.com. Um, I'm also on GitHub, k-burns. Uh, and you can also find my information on the Launch Scout website, I believe, so. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. And I guess last thing before we go, what is next for Caitlin? Do you have any other talks or anything else exciting, even just projects in the works that you're excited about? Um, so I'm, I'm taking a bit of a break from the talks just for a minute, just to, yeah. well, I, actually that's, I guess that's not true. I did submit the same talk to code beam. So we'll see if that goes through or not, but, um, right, yeah. Yeah, I, I always like to take a step back after I've done a talk just to figure out where my next steps are and kind of absorb what I have gotten from that experience. But like I said, this is a part of a bigger project that I would like to build. So probably the next talk would be next steps on that project. It, people seem to be interested in it, so. Will you be getting back up on the trapeze in service of it? Uh, you know what? Maybe, maybe we'll have to try something else. There's silks out there. There's yeah. pole dancing. You know, maybe just <laughs> it de depends on what the technology is. I'm sure I can find something ridiculous and <laughs> mildly dangerous and kind of thrilling. It. Yes, perfect. Yeah. I'll hold you to that. All right. Thank you, Caitlin, for joining us. Thank you, Bruce and Alex, for co-hosting today, and we will see you guys next time on Beam Radio.